You know, as we read the New Testament, we find numerous references there to the concept of living for Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter tells us that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. From the pen of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, we read, Christ liveth in me. And then again, Paul would write in the Philippian letter in chapter 1 and verse 21, For me to live is Christ. But in the passage that I have chosen as our text this morning, Paul sets forth a very forceful way the concept of living for Jesus. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. You know, in some ways it seems like it's been forever. But it's actually only been 18 days since we bid farewell to the calendar year of 2014. It seemed like it just barely started and it was over again. It seemed like we had just barely gotten Christmas of 2011 paid for and it's the beginning of 2015. Now, I would be willing to wager this morning. I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to wager this morning that 19 days ago, most of you, most of us, made some resolutions for the new year, didn't we? I see some heads going like that. That means that they've broken so many resolutions through the years. They're not going to make They've given up on making resolutions. But we made resolutions. And we had every intention of keeping those resolutions. And we pledge ourselves year after year. We make the resolutions. We break the resolutions. And then we make those resolutions, most of them the same ones the next year. And I'm going to keep them this time. I'm going to do better than I did last year, and we don't. I would be willing to wager that the resolutions you made on Wednesday of 2014 of the things you were going to do in 2015, by noon on Thursday, January the 1st, most of them had already been broken. But we go on and we make them year after year after year. Let's see if any of these fit. I'm going to drop a few pounds this year. Yeah, right. How's that been working out for most of us? I know how it's working out for me. I'm going to buy some new scales. I'm going to start exercising every day. Well, it's been awfully rainy, hasn't it? I'm going to be more patient with those around me. Don't you dare ask Norma how I'm doing with that one. I'm going to be a little kinder. I'm going to be a little cautious with my tongue and, and not be so acidic about the things I say about other people. 
I'm going to guard my ears with what I listen to. And then there's just a whole lot of others that, that we make as individuals. What I want to do is I want to issue a challenge to us this morning. A challenge to each of us as individuals, a challenge to us as a congregation. That whatever our New Year's resolutions were 18 days ago, that we make up an amended list of resolutions. And we add one more to that list. And that is that we resolve in 2015 that we're going to live for Jesus. One of the foremost reasons that the church of the 21st century does not have the power it should have among the world today is because of our own personal failure in living for Jesus. Sometimes we just don't live the kind of life Jesus wants us to live. Mahatma Gandhi was a leader in India. He was a prominent leader in the movement when India was seeking their independence from Great Britain. And later in his life, Gandhi said this. He said, I would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Think about that. You see, Gandhi had seen something that many others over the years have seen. Gandhi had seen something that probably... Some folks right here in Center, Texas have seen that sometimes there's a major disconnect between the Christian tenets for life as Jesus laid them down, between the things that Jesus said would be godliness and the actual practices of Christians. Or to put it another way, Sometimes we're just not very Christ-like. If we're going to live for Jesus, it's going to involve two very broad categories that I'd like for us to consider. One of those is a separation. There has to be a difference between us and the world if we're going to live for Jesus. Think about what Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 12, and verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, complete, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm afraid that oftentimes, rather than being transformed from the world, we have become too conformed to the world. But oftentimes, morally speaking, there's too much of the world in the church and there's not enough of the church in the world. But I also think that our thinking on the subject of worldliness is often too narrow. That we think of worldliness and we think of that long list of the works of the flesh that Paul outlines in Galatians 5. And when he outlines those works of the flesh and he talks about murder and adultery and fornication and drunkenness and, and, and robbery and those things, well, we start to congratulate ourselves because none of us are going to go hold up a convenience store or get drunk this afternoon. So we're pretty good people. But there's more to worldliness than just those sins of passion. You see, when we're not going to be conformed to the world, not being conformed to the world means that you and I, as God's people, you and I have got to rise above pettiness and little things. We've got to rise above itsy-bitsy thinking. We've got to realize that as God's people, things like selfishness and gossip, those things have no place among those that are trying to live for Jesus Christ. We can't major on minors and minor on majors. We can't take little things and make big things out of them. We've got to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to see the Lord and we've got to see the church that He gave His life for. And see that the Lord and His church and the Lord's work are larger and they're greater and they're more important than any of us. You remember what Jesus said when He was going away in John 13? He called His disciples together. He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know you are My disciples, if you have love one toward Love. That's our badge of discipleship. What does the world think? When Jesus said, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, what does the Lord or the world think when it sees Christians mistreating each other? Among the people of the Lord. The people that love the Lord. 
and the people that love each other. There's no place for complaining, moaning, nitpicking, fault-finding, grousing, and constant dissatisfaction. There's no place for it. Jesus, in that Sermon on the Mount in chapter 12 of Matthew 7, He said, Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so unto them. So often, our inconsistent living causes the church to be despised. And I'm not talking about the moral inconsistencies of, of those gross sins of passion that are in that laundry list. It's like Gandhi said. Christians can sometimes be so unlike Christ. Haven't we all heard stories about someone whose heart was open to the gospel because of the Christ-like example that someone had lived before them and caused their heart to be opened? How many stories could be told of how ungodliness turned folks away from the gospel? What do our non-Christian friends and our non-Christian co-workers think when they hear us criticizing each other and criticizing You see, we've got to change our concept of the church. It's not a lodge. It's not a service club. It's not a fraternal order and it's not a political party. It's the body of Christ. It's the family of God. And sometimes there's conflict in a family. But that conflict stays in the family. Now, you've all heard me tell stories about some of my extended family. And I'll tell you what, you want to tell me what sorry low life some of your extended family is? I promise you I'll top it. But when we talk about the church, we're not talking about our extended family. We're not talking about that great uncle that stayed drunk all the time. When we talk about the church, we're talking about our brothers and our sisters. Now, in any nuclear family, and that's what the church is, is a nuclear family. There's conflict. There's things that go on that the family doesn't talk about because that's family business. I could stand here this morning and I could tell you that in 34 years of marriage, Norm and I have never had a crossword, but I couldn't tell you that with a straight face. I could tell you that we never had a problem out of either one of our boys. And I couldn't tell you that with a straight face either. But the things that go on in our family are none of your business. Norm and I have a cross word or two over some 
you don't need to know about it. And if I had a problem with either one of my sons, it's none of your business either. Well, guess what? Among the brothers and sisters in this family, what happens in the family is none of anybody else's business outside the family. That's the way God intended it. That's why God made it a family. And we've got to understand that our concept of the church has to be not a lodge, not a fraternal order, not a political party. It's a family. And family business stays in the family. Peter described the influence of false teachers in Second Peter 2 and verse 12. And he said, because of them and their followers, the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. When the world despises the church for its stand for truth, that's shame to the world. But when the world comes to despise the church because of the hypocrisy within it, that is to the shame of the church. So if we're going to live for Jesus, part of it has to be a separation from the world. And part of it also has to be a proclamation. To proclaim our faith and win souls for Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. He said, Go you therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them, he said, to observe all things I have commanded you. And I'm with you always to the end of the world. In Mark 16, he's, in verse 15, he said, Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. All of us, congregationally and personally, are commanded to go and teach the gospel. If not across the ocean, at least across the street. The church of Jerusalem was considered to be the model church. Acts 5 and verse 42 tells us that daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. The greatest need of the church today is personal soul winners. And we don't need some great structured program to do that. We don't need to meet once or twice a week and go out in twos and, and show films or movies or anything else to do that. All we need are individual Christians dedicated to the Lord and His church who love the Lord more than anything else and will tell people around them that they love the Lord and live as if they love the Lord. The church should have our undivided interest and our steadfast attachment. We must love the church. We must be concerned about the church. We must be interested in the progress of our home church. And we must be loyal to our home church. I guess one of the greatest challenges 
that I face sometimes. It's trying to figure out how to motivate men and women to live the kind of life Jesus wants us to live. What can we say? What can we do? And I used to agonize over that question. What can I say that would motivate folks to to live closer to the Lord? What can I do that would make folks live closer to the Lord? And I realized something one day. And when I realized this, I shared it with a couple of preacher friends of mine. They said, never thought about that. I'm going to sleep better tonight. Because there's nothing I can do. If Jesus Christ, hanging on a rough-hewn wooden cross, bleeding out, will not motivate people to live His kind of life, there's nothing this feeble human can say that's going to motivate people to live Christ's kind of life. That motivation has to come from seeing God's only Son hanging on that cross, beaten, bloodied, Nails through his hands, a spike through his feet, a spear going in his side, and every ounce of his life blood pouring out. That's what motivates us to live for Jesus. Gandhi said, I would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. What he was saying is that if Christians would live like Jesus, He'd follow Jesus. That's because our lives, folks, are more profound than our words. And so the question all of us have to answer is, what does my life say about my love for Jesus? What does my life say about my love for the Lord? Do you need to make changes? It's his invitation as we stand and want to see.